Previously on American Thought Leaders. It is a career path. It is a path to power. People who are in government roles in misinformation, disinformation at DHS will get their next jobs at the German Marshall Fund or at the Atlanta Council's Digital Forensics Research Lab. In part one of my interview with Mike Benz, executive director of the Foundation for Freedom Online, he explained the existence of a whole of society censorship industry in the West. Now in part two. What you are doing in a regime change operation is you are operationalizing huge masses domestic population, and in order to do that, you need to control the media infrastructure. You need to control the narratives that people believe. What was new is that in 2016, this began coming home. We discuss how tools originally developed to promote regime change were deployed against Americans. NATO declared a new doctrine called From Tanks to Tweets. Tweets. And there became a whole new military doctrine called Hybrid Warfare. From, quote, digital resilience, to media literacy, to moderation, and intervention, a whole new lexicon emerged to describe the new censorship regime. Whoever can control the Department of Dirty Tricks is able to use it to remove all opposition. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Janja Kellek. So a couple of quick thoughts. Uh, number one, you know, Russia essentially became a code word for Trump. The second thing is, um, you know, this, this was actually all being done in the name of protecting democracy, if I recall how, how this is all being explained, right? Right, right. So democracy is a, is a fascinating word, both historically and in the context of the development of the censorship industry. Obviously, the thing that makes democracy the underpinning, so to speak, of the American governance system is this idea that government exists to serve the people and it's legitimized. It's consent by the governed. That is, the government exists because the governed people consent to it and it is their consensus that they want the government to do what it's doing that way. That's how we know that the government is serving us rather than we're serving an overlord government. So democracy has been a a sort of rallying cry for the U.S. foreign policy establishment um, to use the Department of Dirty Tricks, if you will, for purposes of regime change and regime stabilization as a matter of foreign policy around the world as part of the management of the American world empire for a long time. And by the way, I should say, as somebody who's had a career in the foreign policy establishment, I do not have a problem with that normatively, so to speak. I think there are, there are reasonable opinions on both sides about the necessity of regime change or counterinsurgency in various regions. Um, I don't go there. Uh, my concern is, is over censorship and digital freedom. And when concepts like you know, uh, using democracy as a pretext for regime change, so to speak, comes home and is used as part of a pretext for doing, say, the regime change of a U.S. president uh, on democracy grounds and using the same toolkit that is done in, for example, a regime change context, where control over media is absolutely essential because what you are doing in a regime change operation is you are operationalizing huge masses of a indigenous or domestic population in order to create a ground-up overthrow of a sitting government. And in order to do that, you need to control the media infrastructure. You need to control the narratives that people believe because you need them to believe that their government is evil or illegitimate or tyrannical in order for them to overthrow that government. So in that context, when there's a democracy threat, 
it creates the predicate for controlling the media in that territory. And there are various ways that the U.S. State Department, various assets that can be deployed on the media side in the foreign context. What was new is that in 2016, this began coming home. This foreign to domestic switcheroo was done in the media context through, through, through several mechanisms, the creation and the government funding of these censorship uh, uh, professional groups that were essentially cutouts of the U.S. State Department of the U.S. Defense Department or DHS. The, the, a so-called threat to democracy from social media fueling populism was a common slogan by which all the different stakeholders in the foreign policy establishment could band together to say that there's a common threat we all face. Whether we're Democrats associated with the National Democratic Institute or Republicans associated with foreign policy links like the International Republican Institute, we're not threatened by, say, you know, liberalism or conservatism because that's a partisan thing. But if we're commonly threatened by democracy, we can use that as our common rallying point for us all to pour those resources in together. What happened was, though, is they needed to create this sort of new definition of democracy to justify censoring in the name of democracy. And essentially how they did that was by defining democracy as not being a consensus of individuals, say, reflected by how people vote, but rather through, by, as a consensus in, of institutions. That is, what institutions prefer. And this is a, a sort of uh, conceptual sleight of hand that is extremely dirty when you, if you think about it in, in any level of depth. Um, you know, by the way, you'll see this in strange places the moment, the moment you start looking for it. You know, you'll, you'll see even early on in 2017, 2018, you had military and foreign policy folks and intelligence uh, writing op-eds that, um, that you know, there need to be more guardrails on who you can even uh, make eligible to become president. There should be a 15-person panel comprised of military and intelligence uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, senior, senior folks who vet a person before they can even go, go through the process of being nominated for president. And this idea that democracy should not be left up to the masses of people. There should be guardrails that make sure that the national security and the foreign affairs uh, you know, wings of the foreign policy establishment uh, can basically pick the pool of people that the, that the masses can have a say over. That is, the institutions get the first cut and the, the masses get the remnant. This was sort of the redefinition of what democracy means to the foreign policy establishment. And it was, it's through that, the moment you sort of understand that that's how they see things, you can see how they say that social media freedom is a threat to democracy. Because to them, it's not a democracy of what 10,000 people in Wisconsin think. It's what, you know, Harvard and MIT and the Council of Foreign Relations and the Atlantic Council and NATO and the World Economic Forum and, you know, and the Department of Homeland Security. It's, it's what the institutions collectively you know, uh, prefer. And so threats to, to the institutional consensus that at the individual level are a threat to democracy. And so social media, this was the predicate by which you, you had the national security state descend on social media. I can't help but think that this, is, this all started happening under the Trump administration, which actually eventually you became part of. Right. Well, it did, it did start a little bit before that. I, I would argue that the infrastructure for the foreign to domestic switcheroo technically probably started, uh, if you were to pick a clean start point, I would, I would describe it as being right after the Crimean annexation vote in, um, in early 2014. 
That was when the Obama administration's State Department and Defense Department and the foreign policy establishment uh, decided that um, internet free speech was a serious problem in foreign contexts. That is, that hearts and minds um, you know, uh, in, in a internet free speech context could decide to vote against American interests. Um, up until that point, the internet freedom had always been something strongly backed by the U.S. government because it is so instrumental to uh, having low-cost regime change because you simply flood a zone with, it, with hashtags and Facebook groups and influencers that have a relationship with the U.S. State Department and it's, you're able to have an, you know, have an instant revolution like the Arab Spring. But what happened in 2014 is that backfired in, in some respects and there became uh, a whole new military doctrine, I mean, it's, it's not a new concept, but it, it was given a new name called hybrid warfare. NATO declared a new doctrine called from tanks to tweets, saying NATO is no longer about, you know, tanks and traditional warfare. It's about political control over the covert NATO countries. And so our new remit, and in fact, right after the Brexit vote, this is Brexit was June 2016, the very month after it, in July 2016, at the Warsaw Conference, NATO essentially created an addendum to now engage in hybrid warfare as, as one of their core capacities. And it was, it was these hybrid war centers that actually became the initial censorship um, industry professionals. For example, the Atlanta Council's Digital Forensics Research Lab, who was one of the four entities that DHS partnered with to censor your opinions about the 2020 election. They got their start in that interstitial period between 2014 and 2016 when they were doing early censorship work for NATO uh, as, as part of the hybrid warfare doctrine. The problem was in 2016 when Brexit and the Trump election happened, that infrastructure had had two or three years of, of prior development and it simply moved westward to, to Britain, to the U.S. homeland. Now, the Trump administration was not aware of, 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 of this, um, and I consider that to be, you know, my sacred duty well, you know, during the Trump administration. You know, I was, when I was at the White House, I was doing my morning pilgrimage through the various offices trying to tell people. Uh, I remember going over to the budget office and telling the budget folks, we, we got to stop the government grants to all these different, these different institutions that are censoring an in-process election. And we pulled up the grant pages and everyone said, hey, there's, there's, no, there's no grants for censorship here. What are you talking about? And I said, no, look, they're calling them media literacy, digital resilience. You have to be able to speak, censor speak, to, to know how they laundered all of this because they know what they're doing is dirty. They know that, that they can't call it what it is so part of the, the functions of the academic underpinnings, you know, this is what Stanford and MIT and you know, Berkeley's data lab, all, it is to create a new dictionary of terms that can be used. You know, we don't, it's not censorship, it's it first, you know, it, was, it, was, it was content moderation, and now, now they use a new term called intervention. You know, this idea that we're actually not censoring what you're saying, we're intervening to prevent you from hurting yourself with what you might say, don't you know? And media literacy is a way of saying, well, we're not censoring you, we're simply getting you to be literate about what kinds of media you have access to. So for example, if you read CNN or the New York Times, you're media literate. If you read Breitbart or watch Fox News, you're media illiterate. And so we're going to help as part of our media literacy programs, we're going to help social media companies uh, contextualize low information integrity media literacy threats like 
Tucker Carlson's show having, you know, uh, having normal distribution access on Twitter. So it's, it's all done through a laundering apparatus, which by the way, is the bread and butter of how foreign policy operations work. You know, when the CIA does an operation in Nicaragua, you know, they don't come out and say it's, you know, we're, hello, we're a foreign intelligence service who are doing this. The laundering process is, you know, there's the use of front companies, there's the use of creative terminology, there's a whole branding and media effort. These are professionals doing a professional job with professional PR, professional crisis communications, and they're simply doing domestically what they have been empowered since the 1940s to do abroad, except now it's coming to Boston instead of Baghdad. Well, and now in the, what did start, I think, as you said, during the Trump administration was this sort of powerful use of AI, which just hadn't existed before, where you could stop speech in its tracks, basically. Right. Now, technically, that AI was in its early stage of development, um, again, during that 2014 to 2016 period, for a slightly different reason. In the run-up to the Obama administration's um, military interventions in Syria, there was a dramatic concern or, or sort of media escalation of the concept of homegrown ISIS threats. Mm -hmm. And the idea that ISIS was growing in popularity on Twitter and Facebook, and they were doing recruiting there. And so at the time, DARPA began really pouring money into funding for the use of natural language processing, machine learning, artificial intelligence powered censorship capacities, um, sort of repurposing things that were done in the advertising space. If you're doing brand analysis, if you're, say, your high-end luxury brand and you want to know what people are saying about Dior handbags on Twitter, there had existed for some time the capacity to essentially scrape public conversations through using keywords, through using, you know, through, through mapping networks, through, through aggregating big data in order to create network maps of who's saying what about your brand and then using that to, uh, for purposes of ad targeting, attribution, whatnot. DARPA basically took that commercial concept and said, hey, you know what, let's use this for counterterrorism purposes. And instead of, say, amplifying or doing ad targeting, we're going to use that to help do censorship of ISIS on Twitter and Facebook. And so there became a, 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 a university started receiving a tremendous amount of, of, of military funding to have military grade censorship capacities to take out ISIS on, uh, um, and then what happened was is you went straight from ISIS being the target to MAGA being the target in 2016. And it wasn't just MAGA, I don't consider this to be a partisan thing. Um, I don't have uh, empirical evidence that, that this was used against Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn or left-wing uh, populist groups, but I would, I would be surprised if it was not the case. Uh, but the fact is, is the AI story did start before 2016, but the, the, the chickens had not yet come home to, to, to roost on it. That is, it was still a part of the foreign policy toolkit, the things that we do abroad because it's terrorism, because it's foreign policy, but that we don't do to Americans because Americans have free speech and Americans have constitutional protections and Americans have due process. That social contract was irreversibly broken after the 2016 election. And I think the, the task now is to create a new social contract that really begins with a reckoning of what's, what's happened. So I definitely want to talk about that. But, you know, the obvious thing is to talk about is that, you know, 
ostensibly what was being done to, you know, prevent ISIS recruitment, for example, which is presumably one of the uses of what you're describing, or basically the, there's very real threats out there, right? And we're kind of in this place, and I find this incredibly disturbing now, right, where you have actual significant disinformation operations, say, coming out of communist China and something that we track, right, that are targeting Americans specifically these threats exist and they've existed before and there needs to be some way to counter them and these tools were you know ostensibly created to deal with that in right. some way and uh so it feels almost like an intractable problem do we give up on all that well, do this, we... so this is you know this is why earlier um in in our conversation here i, I tried to say that i try to be agnostic on that because it is a it is a very complicated uh you know issue and, and i don't think that the problem was even really, it wasn't until 2016 when we even had to grapple with the issue of this being directed so intensely inward. I actually don't find it to be an, ethic, an ethical quandary because uh, I don't consider this to be an edge case. There are edge cases. There are certain times when the distinction between foreign and domestic is blurred, especially in a globalized world, in a, in a totally free and open internet where what somebody says, when someone retweets you from Mexico, you know, that, that's not fundamentally different than someone retweeting you, you know, from Montana. Um, but what was done in this case was so dirty, so out in the open, so known at the time that it was a lie, I'll give you a great example. On January 6, 2017, the Central Intelligence Agency produced their first piece of literature on the Russian interference in the 2016 election. This set the stage for you know, this, this interagency consensus that Russia had tilted the election uh, in, in favor of, of Trump. Now, this was a highly touted finding at the time. All of the clout, all the significance, all of the power of the white shoe, top of the food chain, foreign intelligence service for the United States of America, having an unambiguous total agency consensus that Russia had interfered in the, the election with this, you know, said to be detailed 15 page, you know, memorandum setting forth all the different ways Russia had done it. I read that report the day it came out. There, and it was totally stunning in, in its complete absence of any sort of detail. Any, uh, all it had to corroborate all of the flowery language and filler talk was an appendix at the very end, which said that RT, Russia Today, and Sputnik, which is, I guess, the Russian radio channel, essentially, had higher than expected engagement on Twitter and Facebook and on their YouTube channels. And when you compare their growth rates to, say, growth rates at the BBC, and other sort of uh, you know, publicly funded uh, you know, national broadcasters for other foreign governments, they had high levels of engagement. There was all of the talk about the kinds of interference operations that 14 pages of the memo, 13 pages of the memo had referred to were completely divorced from what they actually put as their findings. It was not true. They didn't have evidence the entire, the, the entire time None of this was an edge case. None of this was, 
you know, they, you know, we've got evidence that Russia had spent $10 billion on social media. All that was even alleged, all that was even alleged was $100,000 in Facebook ads. That's less than a single middle class person's salary in the United States of America. $100,000? Clint Watts, who is the DHS's advisor on censorship for the 2020 election, he gave keynote speeches for CISA to, uh, to uh, and, and one, of the one of his censorship advocacy pitches was that if we don't censor social media, people on social media will vote for the wrong president. He said that at a, at a, at a CISA disinformation conference, in, in, uh, in the summer of, of, in the fall of 2020. So to, to use that as the predicate for this foreign to domestic switcheroo, I don't think we need to go anywhere near that ethical quandary. So what strikes me is that the implications of having these systems that traditionally would target, you know, essentially foreign threats turned inward domestically essentially means that the, the whole system has been, um, I don't know, upended. Is, 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 that, is that what you're saying here? What it means is that the foreign policy establishment has seized long-arm jurisdiction over all things domestic. Really what happens here is whoever can control the Department of Dirty Tricks is able to use it to remove all opposition on the political and social and cultural side. Um, and so, I mean, really what this is, and this is why I come back to the, the conflict between the foreign policy establishment and political populist forces. Because you know, when you really pierce through, through to the soul of the funding and the specific types of conferences where, where censorship thought leadership is done or consensus building is manufactured, it really is in these you know, transatlantic uh, foreign policy hubs, you know, where you've got representatives from the national security state and then from the political and commercial stakeholders in the foreign policy establishment. And what populist folks threatened to do as, as they began to be legitimized through social media in 2016 was threatened to actually have their own domestic concerns addressed at the expense of foreign policy stakeholders. And so the domestic populists don't have access to the Department of Dirty Tricks. You know, there's, there's no, you know, domestic uh, central intelligence agency, if you will. There's, there's no domestic equivalent other than DHS, you might argue, uh, uh, to the State Department or, or to, um, you know, various kinds of diplomatic or defense or intelligence spheres. The, the domestic faction has, you know, these are things like interior, agriculture, labor, housing and urban development. I mean, th these are, these are your, your, your nuts and bolts of, it's, it's what's happening on your street corner. It, you don't have access to tanks or to, you know, advanced logistics or to, you know, entire Wurlitzers of media assets. So prior to 2016, the foreign policy establishment wasn't particularly concerned with what domestic populace thought about in their own neighborhoods. Before the manufacturing heartland turned into the Rust Belt, um, there was no real beef between the heartland and the foreign policy establishment when it came to what blue chip companies were doing in China or, what, you know, or outsourcing of jobs or manufacturing. It wasn't really until the 1990s that there became 
a, um, even the beginnings of a financial, a commercial, and in some sense a cultural cleavage between the domestic uh, populace and the foreign policy establishment. And there, there were conflicts in the 1990s politically on both the left and the right with establishment versus base elements of the Republican and, and Democrat parties. That was effectively neutralized through the, Bush, the Clinton administration, the Bush administration, and the Obama administration. And it came back with a vengeance um, on both sides of the Atlantic through Nigel Farage's movement with Brexit and through the, the Trump movement, the idea of serving the forgotten person, bringing back manufacturing, you know, closing up a border, having national sovereignty, all of these things had a connected underside to it that um, er at every single level was consolidating power back into domestic, domestic forces at the taking that power from what used to be the domain of foreign policy. So I guess what I'm trying to say here is what you have is a situation where the foreign policy establishment has cracked open that department of dirty tricks. Now they do care about what domestic populists say about what's going on in their own neighborhood. They do care about the domestic drivers of that because if domestic populists get into power, they will vote. If they have any success on any metric whatsoever, it will undermine the political will for the foreign policy side. We see this happening right now with the Freedom Caucus of the GOP. The cruxes of the speaker fight with Speaker McCarthy was Matt Gates and, and the Freedom Caucus folks um, holding out for days in heated negotiations to get this reduction in military spending so that it could be repurposed for domestic purposes. The foreign policy establishment didn't want that. The foreign policy wing of the Republican Party didn't want that. They had to fight to the bone in order to get you know, that concession on reduced military spending. So you can understand from that perspective why it is that certain factions within the U.S. military establishment and, and the U.S. State Department and military and intelligence folks wouldn't want Matt Gates to have any success whatsoever because the more he succeeds, the more clout he has, the more pressure he can put on Kevin McCarthy, and the less success, you know, the, the, the tighter the leash on the foreign policy establishment there. So I think that's a clarifying example. Since we're jumping into this, explain to me what you think the significance of, is of this subcommittee on the weaponization of the federal government, which is you know, a product of, of what you just described. It is long overdue. It's something I've been um, calling for from within the White House for several years. I mean, this, there's a certain poetry to this weaponization on a federal government subcommittee that's being housed within the, the House Judiciary Committee, and it, which some people are sort of calling Church Committee 2.0, and there's certain poetry between that and the original Church, uh, church Committee 1.0 in 1975, um, which, which is this. So you had the sort of development of a powerful and consolidated uh, um, uh, intelligence capacity in the U.S. government in World War II and then consolidated through the 1947 National Security Act in 1947. And then you had 30 years, essentially, of no breaks on that train as more and more powers accrued to it. As you had this sort of statutory grant of power, get even more power through things like uh, the National Security uh, NSC 10-2, which basically gave, gave all sorts of teeth to it. As more and more powers were given to the national security state, more and more abuses started happening to political dissidents domestically 
from entities that were only supposed to operate on foreign soil. Um, that is, you had situations like in, in, in the 1960s, um, as the, when, when the CIA was doing battle with international communism, one of the things that came out was they were actually funding student groups on U.S. college campuses, operating in, you know, domestically, running student newspapers, paying the National Student Association, uh, you know, infiltrating college kids. Um, and this was something that there was no oversight for. This capacity existed for 20 years, but there had never been any congressional investigation. There had never been any opening up the box to see all of the, the dirt inside. So in the analog sphere, the church committee, it's a complicated topic. There was a lot that was left undone by it. There are fairly persuasive arguments that some elements of it were uh, incomplete or you might even argue a whitewash. But the fact is, is there was essentially a two-year um, you know, set of open hearings that were dramatic, they were powerful, and they were so impactful that they helped actually bring Jimmy Carter to power. Um, at the time, the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, and the IRS, which were the four targets of the original church committee, were being weaponized against left-wing groups because they were the ones challenging the foreign policy establishment. They are the ones who are primarily the anti-war protesters, the anti-imperialists, so to speak. Um, and so you had this sort of FBI, CIA, NSA, and even IRS convergence on those groups. It engendered a tremendous amount of political ire in the political left at the time. And they voted Jimmy Carter into power partially on the basis that Jimmy Carter was going to rein in the intelligence services. And in fact, Jimmy Carter did that. He laid off 33% of the entire operations division of the, of the CIA. I mean, the operations is where that's really the beating heart of, of our foreign influence capacities. Now, he ended up getting in trouble with the Iran sort of hostage situation in 1979. And then while Reagan inherited this sort of situation of intelligence still having this sort of dirty name from the church committee hearings, but wanting to sort of have this sort of powerful, uh, you know, foreign capacity. And so a lot of that was privatized through, uh, through cutouts like the National Endowment for Democracy. And what happened was we have no church committee equivalent for the digital age. In 1991, the World Wide Web came out. The internet was privatized and you started to have the intelligence services, the diplomatic spheres, the, the foreign policy establishment got in on the internet game. And the abuses were few and far between really up until 2016. But we've now had many years of these Department of Dirty Tricks operating with, with no congressional transparency, with no one using subpoena power to pry open the agencies, with nobody holding up the equivalent of the heart attack gun like Frank Church did with James Angleton during the church committee hearings. There's no equivalent of, we're going to show the dirty laundry not to discredit you, but actually to restore faith in you. You know, the, the idea behind the church committees was not to, uh, to disband the FBI and the CIA and the NSA. It was to reckon with where the American people were. You're not gonna get back our trust unless you come clean about what you've done, or at least a substantial portion of it. This is a difficult thing because these are, by nature, clandestine service operations. And even when what they're doing is not clandestine in terms of its operational jurisdiction, they are still under cloak of secrecy because of national security. Basically, what Congress said at the time is, because we need you, 
we need to know your dirty secrets, the American people need to, because otherwise we can't trust you going forward. So you, we need tough love, essentially. We need to embarrass you in order to believe in you again. And it's my contention that that is now needed for the digital age. Uh, and that's really the only way that trust can be restored. When you were speaking earlier, um, it sounded like a, not a lot of people were really listening to you. <laughs> um, has that changed at all? I, guess. I would say so. I do think that some of it just became so self-evident over time that um, you really don't have much choice, <laughs> you know, so to speak. Like you can, you can believe me uh, or not if I tell you the oxygen is running out of the room, but when you get to a point where the air is so thin that you can't breathe anymore, and that is what's happening now. We are, but for Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter earlier last year, um, there were no breaks. Things were getting so bad so fast and there were no outlets whatsoever. There were no shared internet platforms uh, that had all institutions of society on board it. Um, and even at the commercial level, you started having people who were not politicals, you know, people who were just cultural commentators, um, sports figures, you know, people who don't do politics for a living started to lose their bank accounts, started to not have access to, to apps like Airbnb or, or Uber because of their you know, opinions on a public health epi epidemic that everybody was, was so, you know, I, I think people are listening now because the political angle has merged with, with the, the social and cultural one in a way that they are now no longer distinct things. Censorship is no longer its own field in that sense. It is part of how people go through their day because what they say online could now jeopardize their entire livelihoods. As we finish up this time, is this, you know, your vision for how to fix things is to have a church 2.0 and, and then this will solve the issues or where, where, where do things need to go? It's one component of, shall we say, a whole of society approach that has to be taken to internet freedom. Just as a whole of society approach was done on the censorship side, um, it's a network attack and it requires a network defense. Strange bedfellows may need to bind together. Um, uh, I, I forget the quote, it may be Ronald Reagan, but something like uh, in the heat of the, the Cold War that maybe the one thing that could unify humanity is sort of a, a threat from, a new threat from aliens or something that would you know, get everyone together on a common humanity thing. There is an aspect through which people who believe in freedom are truly going to need to merge elements of government, private sector, civil society, and news media um, into a common effort to restore a free and open internet using any and all assets available, even strange and creative ones that are not normally fit to such purpose. Um, you know, the, the, the Church Committee 2.0 is absolutely vital and essential even if only for symbolic purposes to signal to people throughout civil society, throughout the private sector, throughout you know, other institutions, that Congress is serious and public about this, that they have your back, that, that Washington is not all against you. Washington is not all on the side of censorship. You have the judiciary, the, you know, the, the Committee for Rule of Law, who is on Team Freedom. That's a very powerful signal. It emboldens people. 
It makes people take risks for freedom. People who are afraid for their careers. They've, you know, they've got husbands, wives, children, college fund, cocktail parties they might lose, uncles who may not talk to them, friends who might abandon them. Uh, it is a hard road to fight for freedom. There is, there is no lobby for the American people. When people take an ideological stance for freedom unto itself, for little people, you are sort of on your own in that. Every, every person who goes through that journey of fighting for that experiences the isolation of that. To know that you've got a, a chairman like you know, Jim Jordan, you've got respected, influential legislatures who are going to have your back is, is, is vital to that. Um, and I do think having that run, as the church committee did, as a multi-year thing, until we get to the bottom of it, will be a cleansing process. Given everything you're describing here, there's still you know, a substantial portion of the American population who doesn't see what you're describing, um, maybe doesn't want to see what you're describing, is you know, ready to accept the legacy media narratives on reality. How do we deal with that? The free and open internet was a rare instance of true information, democracy, and meritocracy in world history. Rather than losing hope that, um, that this monstrous, tyrannical system you know, is all-powerful and has seized control over things as basic as what you can say when you open your mouth, you know, uh, uh, I would say take a minute to appreciate just how incredible it was that these freedoms opened up to, to the world, that you could be, you know, some poor kid in Bangladesh who's got a great idea, and if you've got a, access to a free and open internet, you could end up becoming a YouTube influencer with 10 million, so, and, and have a level playing field with institutions like the New York Times in an instant. Um, that's something that, uh, that came out of nowhere, essentially, with the development of a free and open internet, and only recently began to be you know, batted back on. And what you start to see when you start fighting for this uh, is, although it's a, it's a lonely road at times, you make a lot of friends along the way, and often from places that you wouldn't expect. And I actually think that, um, that the process of, of being proud and brave and public in this fight is something that can actually cure the isolation and can cure the feelings of depression or helplessness that can come from simply accepting things the way they are and feeling like you can't change it. Well, Michael Benz, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you all for joining Michael Benz and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. Mm -hmm.